Welcome to season four of my podcast, Between Us, Stories of Unconscious Bias. I've added the title Between Us, as I thought stories of unconscious bias alone was a little too remote. My hope was that the podcast would feature honest and personal stories that raise awareness and educate. Between Us, as a main title, underlines the intimacy while reinforcing the sense of our collective involvement. Since launching it in early May 2020, the world has again changed. George Floyd died, and Black Lives Matter, which had started in 2013, has become more popular and more widely accepted. Identity politics and culture wars have deepened in the UK and the US. Meanwhile, in other countries, people are being marginalized for their religion and beliefs. The need to understand the subject of unconscious bias has taken on ever more meaning and resonance. As always, I am so grateful to all my wonderful speakers who share their often brave stories and allow us to understand the nuances of this very important subject. Thank you for listening. I'd like to introduce Baroness Helena Kennedy QC. Helena is one of Britain's most distinguished lawyers. She has spent her professional life giving voice to those who have least power within the system, championing civil liberties and promoting human rights. In an interview from a few years ago, Helena was asked about her best and worst days of work. Successes like the release of Paul Hill, one of the Guildford Four, is a given. But what was moving and powerful was to hear Elena talk of supporting and winning the case with the battered women who killed their husbands after years of abuse, or the wife of the bomb plotter accused of failing to inform on her husband, or the gay man arrested by some prurient vice court officer as he left a gay club. Helena has conducted many prominent cases of terrorism, official secrets and homicide. She's the founding force behind the establishment of the Bonavero Institute of Human Rights at the University of Oxford. In 1997, Helena was elevated to the House of Lords where she is a Labour peer. She has published two books on how the justice system is failing women and has written and broadcasted on many issues over the years. Currently, she has taken on the role of director to the International Bar Association's Human Rights Institute. She directs the Institute's work upholding the rule of law and human rights globally. I am so very thrilled that Baroness Helena Kennedy is joining me today to share her stories of unconscious bias. Thank you so very much, Helena. Before we even discuss stories, what do you understand by these two simple words, unconscious bias? Uh, um, it's very easy to talk about bias. And bias, of course, is one of those things that uh, as, uh, as lawyers operating in the courts, and I work in the criminal courts, um, uh, we, if we get a sense of any kind of bias, lack of impartiality from the judiciary um, is something that we are all too aware of. And, uh, and so bias is something that is part of uh, one's training and one learns throughout one's uh, professional life to be alert to it operating in others, and also to become aware of ways in which we have our own biases. Now, unconscious biases are the, those biases which are so deep-seated that we're not even aware of them. Um, I'm conscious of certain biases that I have. Certain, I, I'm drawn to certain kinds of people. I'm aware that I that um, of course um, we're more inclined uh, to find comfort in the the companionship 
of others who are like ourselves. Um, and when I say that, I mean, you know, I love being with other women who are smart and intelligent and fun and, uh, and, I, and I'm biased in their direction. And I, um, and I also am rather kind of biased against people who are very judgmental and who uh, make decisions about people because of how they lead their lives or because they're different and so on. And so um, I'm conscious of the ways in which I have my own biases and I try to challenge them within myself. Unconscious bias is that which is so deep rooted that it's quite hard to even get to. And, uh, and those, those are the sorts of biases that people always deny having. Um, and uh, the, there are the obvious things that happen. Um, I mean, let me just talk about the ways in which this has been very much evident in my own, in my own work. When I was a young lawyer, I came from a big working class family in Glasgow. We were from an Irish Catholic background. I'd been brought up in a, in a city, Glasgow, which was uh, full of sectarianism. Um, happily, uh, that is dissipating as, as with time. And, uh, and um, I'm glad to say that it, uh, it's, it's very different, I think, now. It's not all gone. Um, but, there, but some of those biases against Catholics, which, which I was brought up with, and to be fearful of and to be made aware of the fact that as a Catholic, that we may face prejudice bias and that uh, and that we may therefore not get jobs not get into uh, uh, certain institutions or um, uh, um, uh, places that we might might want to go uh, th th that was what I was brought up with to know that we may be at the receiving end of bias and bias which may be conscious or unconscious so 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 sectarianism gives rise to that and I'm sure that um, if uh, if people are brought up in places in which there are firm and hard divisions in society, then they, they, they become very conscious of bias and the unfairness that goes with bias, the judging of people um, on stereotypes and on uh, basically uh, grouping you in a, in, a, in a way that doesn't uh, look at you as an individual. So. Um, uh, unconscious bias has figured large uh, as a large thing in my life personally, but also um, uh, when I came down to London to study and then I became a, a barrister here in London, I was part of a very small group. Um, not many women went to the bar <clears throat> in the early 70s. I qualified in 1972, so it tells you the great age that I now am. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and there were very few women. There were only six, six, seven percent um, of practitioners were women. And, and those who were, were usually women from quite uh, uh, different social backgrounds from me. But I be began to look at um, uh, the world then through the eyes of another, another bias, which was uh, based on gender, mm -hmm. that people who were um, uh, women were not considered to be as rational or as uh, suited to um, the professionalism of, of the bar. And if they were going to be in the profession, they should go off and uh, look after um, children, cases involving children, um, involving marital disputes, and uh, and the appropriate uh, areas for women, as as it was thought at the time. I entered the world of criminal law. It was considered then to be very much a male domain because of the ugly uh, side of human nature that was involved in criminality, and I saw very clearly then the ways in which biases, um, sometimes overt but sometimes unconscious. Um, operated. Um, judges would claim that they were being chivalrous in the, the, in the ways that they treated women. But if women didn't conform <clears throat> to ideas 
of what good woman womanhood looked like, then they they often were were quite punitive towards women who perhaps were promiscuous or perhaps were slovenly or were not good mothers or uh, in their view hadn't weren't good wives, even if that wasn't wasn't the issue before the court, but they were judging women um, in ways that 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 live deep in the hearts of people, and so. Uh, um, it, it was interesting to see how uh, uh, the, the system of law could be affected by personal attitudes towards certain kinds of people. And we know this happens the world over, the discriminations against uh, um, lower caste people in India, uh, discrimi discriminations against uh, um, the Roma all the way across Eastern Europe, um, you know, the assumptions that the Roma are, are criminal and so on. Um, discriminations um, that operate against uh, um, uh, black people um, in, you know, the, the, you, you have to ask the question, why is there more stopping and searching of young black uh, men? And the assumption is that, that, that they're, more, they're going to be more criminal. And it doesn't matter how respectable you look, and it doesn't matter if you're driving in a decent car. In fact, it's almost an incentive for the police to stop you if you're driving in a rather fancy looking car, because the assumption is that if you're black, and you're in a fancy car, you must have, it must be the proceeds of crime. And so lots of judges and, uh, and lawyers that I know would themselves um, experience that kind of bias. Unconscious bias is that stuff that lives much deeper in, the, in, 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 a, in people's souls. But it usually comes from stereotyping people, making assumptions, um, you know, grouping people together. It's why I hate that expression, BAME, you know, uh, black and minority yes, ethnic yes hate it because it rolls together such hugely different cultural cultural experiences and individual experiences i agree <laughs> and so but um but what we know is that people um harbor those um deeply um unconscious uh thoughts about particular groupings of people so for example um i remember Back in the, uh, I started writing about the position of women um, in, in, even in the late 70s about discriminations, both within the profession that women had harder time getting into sets of chambers and so on. And then, uh, and the same was experienced by uh, people from ethnic minorities. And, um, and we, in the 80s, we, we were making a louder argument for, the, for uh, uh, the judges to become much more conscious of the ways in which assumptions were being made about people from minorities. And what they started realizing was that, um, for example, when people from certain Asian cultures came before the courts, and because of the, 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 the teaching of respect for your elders and for people in particular positions, like, like a judge, that you didn't look people straight in the eye, that you actually were supposed to keep your head lowered and not be, um, you know, uh, in an insolent way, facing up someone of seniority or your elder. I'm just and smiling when I'm hearing the story of the, of, of the fact that just because you're of a particular culture, the expectation is that you can't look somebody in the eye. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I remember judges saying, um, we've got to be very careful, you know, because Asians often, you, they don't look you in the eye and therefore you think they're a liar. <laughs> and it, it just seems like, it seems like it's a madness to me. And then I remember um, uh, assumptions be, like that being made um, about, for example, 
women, when women came before the courts and spoke about having been battered or abused uh, physically by partners, there were assumptions about what, what would a battered woman, what would an abused woman be like? Oh and they assumed that she would she would have to be a very meek and uh, and sad soul. And so if a woman appeared before the court and seemed to be somewhat vivacious and lively, they found it hard to believe that such a person could be abused. And, and it's, it's and about ticking the boxes, isn't it, Helena? It's about, you know, if you're, if you're a battered woman, then you have to look whatever the judge feels battered should look like. And if you don't look and you don't fit into that particular box, then their unconscious bias could be kicking in and not supporting the fact that you have been battered by an abusive partner at home. Yeah, and, and it, was, it was so interesting that um, uh, people used to say things like, well, how, how was she able to hold down a job? You know, if somebody actually worked outside of the home but was abused inside the home, well, how was she able to hold down a job and uh, and go out and uh, and serve behind a counter um, and do the job efficiently um, if all this was going on at home? They found it hard to imagine that you wouldn't have totally collapsed um, uh, uh, emotionally um, if you were experiencing this. And they and there was a sort of search for reasons why this must be untrue. And it, it's very it was very interesting to me the ways in which unconscious biases feed on stereotypes, feed on myths about certain kinds of peoples, peoples from Nigeria um, uh, being, um, you know, capable of all sorts of, because they're smart, sharp people, that they're capable of all sorts of fraudulent behavior. Um, assumptions about men from the Caribbean, assumptions about the sexuality of black men. That's all manner of things that somewhere deep in the interstices and in the hearts of people live on. And, uh, and you have to really encourage people to look and see whether these things are affecting how they make judgments, whether people in front of them um, have credibility or whether you're un, you know, not believing them and not attributing credit to them because you're hostile to aspects of their life story. I mean, or, this is so powerful, Elena, because I remember a quote that you, the, uh, a quote from you where you said something like, what all women deserve is to be able to choose freely the lives they want to lead, free of oppression and exploitation, filled with opportunity to be who they want to be. It is all about human rights. But, and, and, and that obviously, you know, when we're talking about unconscious bias, because what you've said is so powerful and about the stereotypes, whether it's Nigerian, whether it's battered women, whether it's Caribbean, whether it's, uh, you know, Asian people, it, it, it doesn't matter. It's all of these expectations that people have of stereotypical behavior. But where, where does that come from for you personally, Elena? I mean, you talk about being brought up in a, in a working class Scottish Irish sectarian, uh, you know, family, and you are where you are now. So what kind of unconscious bias influences would you have had to, to go down that path of, of being well, a lawyer and, and defending women and others? Well, of course, I my grandmother, um, um, I remember as a child, um, the, 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 the horror that was felt when um, my grandmother's great friend uh, um, came with uh, this terribly pained story that her daughter was marrying a Protestant. <laughs> and the idea that a Catholic uh, girl 
was 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 going to abandon her faith and marry a Protestant um, was was considered the most um, uh, um, uh, grievous of hurts that someone could visit upon their family, and uh, and and of course she was she was um, uh, um, exiled, you know, because of it. And those things happened. They happened in in Irish families and in Northern Irish families between mm. in, in divided communities where those hostilities lived on and those ideas that the other side of a divide um, was, was pariah, you know, that they, they, were, they were to be, they were outcasts if you uh, crossed those lines. And, so that was uh, kind of embedded in you, is that what you're saying? You grew yeah, up with, with these I, stories around you all the time. Yes, and you, and I, you kind of took it for granted, is that, is that what you're saying? Well, as a small child, I remember be, um, listening and being aware of those things. And then, I, and then of course, I mean, I have to tell you, so if you want to ask me about my own prejudices, my prejudices are against fundamentalist religion. I don't like fundamentalist religion of any kind. I don't like it whether when it's when it's fundamentalist Catholicism, Christianity. I don't like fundamentalism, which which has hard rules. And I don't like it when I see it in, in, in Islam, and I don't like it when I see it as extreme forms of Judaism. I don't like it in any area where people adopt such fundamentalist views that, 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 that the other becomes a pariah. I, but that's I, now though, isn't it? Um, and, and that's with the benefit of hindsight. But let's well, that was back to when you're 10 or 11 or 15, and you're still very much with your parents and the influence that you have around you. Was there any, any particular moment that you suddenly had this kind of, for want of a better word, uh, insight or aha moment and accepting that this particular way of behavior is something you want to fight against and you want to do something different. Was there any particular experience that made you think differently? It became very clear to me by the time I was in my in my adolescence and uh, um, and I was reading white and reading, um, um, uh, you know, great novels and reading about people uh, um, in other parts of the world and the lives that people lived. And the common th thread is the, our common humanity. And the idea that somehow um, that, that, some, that, that someone was different by virtue of their uh, um, religious convictions, um, I, I, I began questioning it when I was as 13, 14, 15, because I was reading so widely, I was a bookworm. I loved books, and I and I read widely, um, and um, and uh, and I, and I have to say that my own parents were not um, uh, bigoted. My grandparents, most certainly, my grandmother my, on my mother's side certainly was, and um, and uh, and my own parents um, were were critical of that. My father particularly, because he'd been in the army, he'd travelled. Um, uh, uh, and uh, and been with men from m many different backgrounds, and he he, he did that kind of thing, um, and so um, uh, the questioning began in my in my early teens, and then of course I came to study in uh, in in London, and when I was here, I I'm, I was with I it was it was the wonder of being in a world in which so many of the people I was studying with um, uh, came from other parts of the world, um, uh, were so different. And, and, and then, and I did feel, I mean, for a, for, for a period in, I felt very angry 
um, with my own church, with, with Catholicism. I felt very angry with it. And of course it frightened the life out of my, my poor mother. Mm. I was so angry with the, the Catholic church's way of dealing with women, its teachings on, 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 on certain things. And, but particularly its attitudes towards women because this was the seventies um, and I was becoming, uh, uh, I, was, I was learning about feminism and about the rights of women. And I, and I started reviewing so many of those things that had been sort of the bricks on which my life had been built. But then of course, as you get into your, um, uh, if you like, more adulthood, you start to make peace with some of those things. And you know that there are some of those things that, and the values that you had as a, in your teachings as a child, which actually were, were, were good, which, which actually were about, um, um, you know your responsibility to others and uh and my own parents were good people and so um but but there was no doubt that I was brought up in a community where we did not I hardly knew a Protestant um when I was growing up in Glasgow I really didn't we didn't mix we didn't I went to Catholic schools um our social life was all with with people who were like ourselves and so I knew nothing about um, people from other religions, but we did. We were very good friends with Jewish. Um, the Jewish. We had, my mother had Jewish friends. She was brought up in um, a poor immigrant part of Glasgow, um, where the the, the 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 immigrant communities were from Ireland or for people who fled Eastern Europe or Poland or wherever. And so my mother had um, uh, close women friends who were Jewish, and so. Um, but but we but we were all given a hard time by the dominant Protestant community. And we knew that when, when my aunts applied for jobs and so on, if, if you, it was clear that you'd gone to Catholic schools or you had a Catholic, uh, if Mary was in your name, um, that was another indicator that you were a Catholic. Right. And uh, so you, you, your chances of getting certain kinds of jobs were just not available to you. So, the, uh, you know, the, the, there was that, um, that, that horrible sort of sense of being a community that was disadvantaged, and and so and so those things, they they for me I think they informed the way in which I became a lawyer because I wanted to give voice to people who had little voice um, within our institutions within our society. Mm -hmm. um, it gave me an understanding of that, and also um, uh, you know I I kind of the greater precepts of uh, of of Catholicism still appeal to me, and I still. But I, but I feel very angry still that Catholicism has uh, marginalized um, women and, and in putting women on a pedestal with Mary um, actually um, disempower women. And, it has, uh, it and, does, not it? Yeah. yeah but I, I was not. also thinking about another aspect of, I mean, I know, for example, that you, you, you had a very close friendship with the, with the famous photographer Eve Arnold, uh, mm -hmm. the, the Magnum photographer. Uh, and she was known, I mean, I, I know that a lot of people think of her as Marilyn Monroe's photographer, but she was also known for taking photographs of, of for want of a better word, the underdog, like the potato pickers, and was a friend of Malcolm X and so on. And I'm just, you know, you your friendships, you mentioned earlier that you Im implicitly, unconsciously kind of connected with people who you felt a connection with. Uh, those were your friends. So I'm just trying to explore this idea of unconscious bias and friendships and someone like Eve Arnold, I mean, would she have influenced you implicitly without your even realizing, for example? 
Oh, we, you know, it's that famous thing that we are part of a part of all that we have met, and uh, and uh, and sh she undoubtedly was uh, a really important person in my life. She became a very good and close friend. I mean, she she uh, was was a lot older than me, but I I adored her, and uh, and I, I have many of her photographs here in my home. Uh, she was um, and she was a remarkable woman, and she was an intellectual. She, you know, she, she yes, she took photographs of of. Uh, and, and is famed for many of her beautiful photographs of Marilyn Monroe, but the photographs that showed Marilyn Monroe to be more than just a glamour girl. Um, uh, Marilyn Monroe, uh, uh, who was a figure um, that, that uh, was thoughtful and who was anti-racist herself. I mean, uh, Marilyn Monroe, I mean, I don't know that people know, that, but Marilyn Monroe um, really did a, uh, stood out on racism. And when Ella Fitzgerald was being banned from clubs, in uh, uh, and performing because she was black. Uh, Marilyn Monroe took a table in a club in Los Angeles and sat there um, on regular occasions um, and uh, and turned turned everything around for Ella Fitzgerald. I had so no that, idea. Thank you for that story. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, Eve Eve knew um, Marilyn at another at another level and uh, and knew her in a different way. But um, and through Eve, I met wonderful people. Um, and we were friends with Maya Angelou, the great uh, um, black American poet um, and writer and novelist. Um, um, she was a remarkable woman, Eve Arnold. Um, and, and, and of course, we, that's the great thing about life is that if you open yourself and shed those unconscious biases, um, those fears of, of people whom you think, for example, might be, be hostile to you, I mean, I mean uh, that's one of the things that as, as one watches what's un, unraveling in the United States and to see white supremacism and so on, that fear of, of, of wanting to live alongside um, people who are different um, to you know, deal with the original sin of slavery. I mean, my God, it contaminated the United States um, from, its, from the very beginning. Um, until that, that, that is, is dealt with, then, then there's going to be great division in the United States. And I have to say that coming to London and studying alongside people who came from the Caribbean, from Africa, from India and Pakistan to study law um, at, at the Inscourt School of Law, I... I I love that, and I and I I was there with them. Um, there was a great cohort of upper class white men, um, but my interest was in all the different people who came from um, so many parts of the world um, to to become lawyers. I love that, but you know, you said Elena that that it's about it's about really trying to. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing what you said, but look at the world more openly and more, you know, be more accepting. But the problem is that most of us, because we have biases, we don't know that we have them, they're unconscious, they're implicit. And so we might just fall back into the same old, same old routine of what, of what to expect and, and fall back to the stereotypes. So how can you, how do you manage, how do you personally manage your, your introspection and your unconscious biases? Well, one of the things that um, uh, was was important in in my sort of evolution um, was that when you're at the bar and you're doing a case, um, and uh, and I was a sort of 
warrior on behalf of, of people um, who were often, you know, uh, the underdog, as, as you've mentioned. Um, I, I uh, there is a thing about doing a case, um, and it may be a culture that's created at the English bar, which was that you would fight hammer and tongs with the person on the other side. Um, but somehow afterwards, um, you were still part of the same world, which was to preserve the rule of law. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so um, it, was, it was one of the things that was an important part of maturing was that you don't, you don't loathe the person who's, who's on the other side, you know? And, and it's very interesting because it's like that in the House of Lords, you know, you, you, you may have very different views from people and you may, you know, absolutely uh, disagree with them on, on politics and on policy. Um, but there's a way in which you have to you f- you have to find a way of having a proper uh, discourse, um, even when you 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 feel that you have very little um, that you share in your worldview. Um, there has to be some way in which you can cross that divide um, if you want to make make any kind of progress. It's it's like the business that's going on just now. Now. Look at look at the the, 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 the the arguments that are taking place about China and human rights. Now, I've been talking about China and human rights. I have to tell you, for most of my adult life, life because of the, the the horrible things that have happened in China. But um, uh, at the moment, um, we we have to make a decision. We have to be on the one hand fierce in our protection of human rights, of the Uyghur, of the people who are being persecuted, of the citizens who speak about human rights in China and who are, are uh, absolutely um, uh, tormented and persecuted um, in ways that are, are horrifying. Um, and we have to speak out about that and we have to try and bring them to the table. But we, all, we do have to try and bring them to the table. We have to try and find a way of having a conversation with, uh, uh, with China about why um, the world is is angry about the abuse that is taking place. And, uh, and, and of course, what China would say to us is, is that great old word that was thrown around during the Brexit debacle here in Britain, is they will say, it's about sovereignty. We can, we can do what we like inside our own borders. But what we all tried to do after the Second World War was to actually break down some of those borders, those barriers, and to fight to create some kind of shared set of values where we had to. Um, try and have some sort of rules-based world and, uh, and to draw everybody into a consensus around them. And, uh, and we have to try and do that again. So while we might abhor the views and the things that are happening um, in places in the world, we also have to find ways of drawing people into conversation, getting them to come to the table, not just uh, uh, you know, slamming each other with uh, criticism. And, and, and that's hard. Um, it's, 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 you know, there are times when I, I feel so enraged by what people do. I mean, I went um, earlier this year to, um, earlier this year, earlier last year, with um, Agnes Calamar, the rapporteur for the United Nations, who deals with extrajudicial killing. And Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi Arabian journalist and, uh, and uh, uh, critic of the re- regime, was, um, uh, had been murdered in, in, in Turkey. And I went out as a legal expert on that team and we listened to that man being murdered. 
uh, the tapes that uh, Turkey um, Turkey unveiled the fact that they had been mugging the, the consulate and therefore they had the evidence of what happened. Mm. Otherwise, we would not, never have known. And, uh, and listening and hearing the terror in the, in growing in a man who entered that consulate confident and speaking in a confident way and you hear his voice as it would be when he was interviewed on television. And then suddenly he realizes that he's facing death in the eye. And these people who had come there to kill him, descending upon him and, uh, and, uh, and the way in which he was killed was horrifying. It was. And all I can tell you is that I do feel a, a huge rage against um, uh, the, the crime prince in Saudi Arabia because I don't feel that he has taken full responsibility for that outrage. And I don't feel that the world has condemned it enough. And, and I have to keep saying to myself, is my rage about any form of a particular kind of bias because I, 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 I can't stand the hypocrisy of the way in which this man lives his life and some of his confederates do, um, enjoying uh, the riches while at the same time pretending about something to do with the religion and adherence to certain precepts. Um, and, and let me assure you, I, I, have to, I have to stop myself feeling deep-seated bias when I come to, to confronting some of the, 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 the people who I feel are responsible um, for, for wrongdoing. And the thing about it is that when you allow bias to enter into your um, framing of, of accusations, it can actually, um, um, it can destroy your case because, because it, the appearance of bias can make it clear to make, well, can make people doubt the, the, the truthfulness of the accusation or the strength of the evidence. And so um, it's very important that we find, um, that we identify the ways in which we are allowing ourselves to be uh, motored by some kind of bias. Oh, that's extremely powerful. Uh, it's, 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 you know, whether it's, I mean, we, you, we would never be in the experience, you know, have the experiences that you do uh, in terms of being a barrister or a lawyer and defending the kind of cases that you are, but we can still learn from what you've just said to us because it is about really consciously listening and engaging and not jumping to conclusions. It could be that simple, you know, whether you're a Tory and I'm a Labour supporter, and that means I, you know, I don't agree with anything you say is silly. Listen and engage and, 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 and explore rather than just making an assumption that I'm right and, and you are wrong or the other way around. No, I mean, this has been wonderful. But you know, um, uh, there is an interesting thing, which is that I do remember doing a case where I was acting um, for someone who was accused of, um, of child abuse. And it was a very difficult case for me to do. I'm the mother of three children and, um, and acting for this man was, was, was hard. And um, as a barrister, you have to somehow deal with 
and and they're not even unconscious biases, but um, but in in there there are the biases that you know that you might have that that child abuse is is so horrifying, mm-hmm. and comes very close to home if you are uh, a parent of young children, but um, but the un, the other even deeper uh, unconscious things that you might feel, and um, and you have to somehow um, be aware in order to put it to one side. If you aren't aware and don't question yourself, then you can't say, I put it over here and I'm not going to let it interfere with my performance on behalf of this man um, and putting his case to this jury and to this court. That's have- hard. How do you do that? I it, mean, it, seriously. No, but it is hard. I, I mean, there are times, I mean, obviously it becomes easier the more uh, experienced you are and the more you know you the more you're in the profession and and you you become accustomed to doing it but um but it is hard and uh and there are times when it's harder and um uh and and when some cases will will really try your you know test your professionalism and you have to and i think that you can't do, while you're denying that you have any of those emotions then um, I think that you're not you're 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 taking risks of letting bias affect you, but you have to identify your very strong biases and unconscious biases in order to try to put them to one side. That makes an awful lot of sense, absolutely. So first, first become aware of it, and then based on the situation you're in, yeah, put it to a side and really focus on the job at hand, whatever that might be. Yes. Um, I remember once representing a young man and it was in relation to a terrorism um, uh, matter and um, and I, I was chatting to him about um, his family and uh, and uh, my, the, the, my junior counsel in it was a young man and, uh, and my client um, went into his wallet and took out a photograph to show me a photograph of his children but his wife was in the photograph and he put his thumb over his wife's face so that my male colleague who was working with me on the case um, did not put his eyes on his wife. And, and I, can't, I really, I, I, I felt a sense of horror that the assumption was that this young man who was with me working on this case and working so hard that he would cast his eyes on this woman and somehow be uh, um, coveting her or thinking of her in some kind of sexual way. It was so inappropriate and so, and such a, and such a kind of uh, folly of this man. And I, and I, and I, and I felt, I felt hostile to him for doing that. And I had to say, this is his belief system. And, um, and I have to just accept it and, uh, and move on. But I remember the sense of hostility that I felt towards him, my own client, because of his attitude to women, that women were basically always uh, uh, capable of taking people towards sin, of leading men to sin, and therefore need to be covered. (laughs) Ah, We could talk forever and ever. Your stories are are, are so powerful, Elena. I'm so appreciative that you've made the time 
uh, yeah. for all of us to, to, to hear your stories and to understand. So any last kind of, um, I don't know, you've given us lots of advice already, but anything, any last advice, top tips you can give all of us listeners on how we can manage our unconscious biases? No, I think that I think that it's you really have to we really have to reflect on um, uh, the things that creep in to our 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 way of seeing other people and um, and and address them and seek to address them. And um, I, I, I really do. I mean, you said earlier on something very important. You said um, it's really this is really in some ways about human rights. It is. Because um, one of the, the things is, is the thing that we all share, the yearnings that we all have, that we all yearn to love and be loved, that we all um, uh, uh, want to, to know and understand. We all want to be treated with respect um, and not to be disrespected. And so even the, the kids on the street who say, don't diss me, um, it's about feeling that they're being treated as lesser. And so... Um, and we're all capable of doing that to each other. And so we have to make, be mindful. I mean, I think that actually it is about a level of mindfulness helping us towards recognizing our own ways in which we make those judgments of others and, uh, and be more open to seeing um, the good in the other. And, and that's moving, that is so moving and so powerful. Baroness Helena Kennedy, thank you so very much for sharing your stories of unconscious bias. Lovely to meet you and to be with you. This is the final episode of season four. As always, I want to thank the inspirational, thought-provoking speakers without whom I could not have this podcast series. To give you time to catch up with the podcast you have missed, Season 5 will begin in a few weeks. Please do share, rate and review, as word of mouth is the best recommendation I could have. I'm going to end by quoting Elena Kennedy, who you have just heard. She says, We all yearn to love and be loved. We all want to know and understand. We all want to be treated with respect and not to be disrespected. And we're all capable of showing disrespect to each other. So we have to be mindful. It is about a level of mindfulness, helping us towards recognizing our own ways in which we can make those judgments of others and be more open to seeing the good in the other. Until next time.